You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Annie Jacobson is the author of Area 51, Operation Paperclip. Her new book is First Platoon. Thank you for joining me, Annie. This is a wonderful novel. A book. Thank you you so much for having me. The fact that I called it a novel is somewhat indicative of how it reads because it's really an action-packed story that, but by it's also information packed too so it's packed in two two manners because as we read the story of the first platoon and how its soldiers use biometric data to fight the war in, in Afghanistan our brains are also simultaneously unpacking the implications of everything we read on the battlefield and i want to ask you first when you started researching this book what were your thoughts? Were you thinking about where things were at the moment here, or were you also understanding that the implications of the book, of the, mm-hmm. of the technology? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, how interesting and tragically ironic that you would call it a novel, if only this were fiction. And here we are, in immersed in a very non-fiction reality. And that is the reality of First Platoon. You know, the story came to me uh, the way, actually, so this is my sixth book, I suppose you could say, in a series of post-war military intelligence community technology and operations. And every book comes sort of on the tail end of the previous book. I was finishing up Surprise, Kill, Vanish, my book about CIA paramilitary operators, when one of the operators told me about, you know, this extraordinarily violent and kinetic mission whereby they halo jumped into an airfield in northern Iraq. Every, you know, a bunch of ISIS fighters were killed. And the operator said to me, then we had to really rush and grab biometrics before we exfilled. At which point I said, what do you mean biometrics? He explained to me that they had to get the iris scans of all the dead fighters because that's what the CIA wanted. That's what the military wanted, biometrics. And he told me a very gruesome manner in which CIA operators gather iris scans from dead fighters, which is by poking a toothpick into the eyeball to straighten out the iris scan. I mean, it's just you know, not pleasant to think about. But what he was saying was important in terms of first platoon. He was explaining to me that that would never fly under army ROEs, rules of engagement, having to do with desecrating a body. And of course, the CIA runs its operations on very different rules than the rules of the engagement of the military. But it was this CIA operator who explained to me that young infantrymen in the war theater were doing this same biometric collection. 
but had to follow these incredible rules of engagement. So everything had to be done by the book. And in essence, these young kids were, you know, being shot at while they were trying to grab iris scans and DNA swabs of sometimes living people, sometimes dead people. And that made me pause and say, what kind of science fiction world is going on over there that no one knows about? And that was really the impetus of my learning about biometric collection and writing first platoon. Uh, a personal experience for you of <clears throat> William Gibson's famous saying that the future has arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. We are we are in the midst of that future now where many of us are just sitting in suburban homes and thinking, yeah, yeah you know, the sun's out, the world's kind of screwed up, but we're not dead yet. <laughs> but uh, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. Now, when you open the book with a, a really interesting description of something called the Panopticon, uh, this is a, an old form of imprisonment, but it was reinvented by George Orwell into something quite different, and, and that is frightening to us. So explain to what the Panopticon was and talk about how it has grown in fiction through George Orwell, but in fact, through companies like uh, Palantir, just over the hill in Santa in uh, Silicon Valley. Well, the Panopticon is this idea of a prison whereby a single guard can observe every prisoner at once. And proponents of the Panopticon say, you know, oh, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, right? So. But, you know, this is an 18th century concept that, interestingly, was also suggested to be applied to, like, schools and things like that. You know, this idea that if people are being surveyed, they will behave better. Well, flash forward a couple hundred years later where we are today, and there's lots of problems with that presumption starting with the idea that if everyone is being surveyed at all times to be later pinned to a crime, where is the right to privacy? And that very question, interestingly, was raised by Justice Antonin Scalia, one of the more conservative justices on the bench, in this ruling I write about in the book called Maryland versus King. And that's where a uh, you know, the, someone who had been arrested for something that was, you know, not related to a felony charge had his DNA taken, a, a swab from his cheek to get the man's genetic fingerprint to see if he was wanted for other crimes. And this opened up a, a case uh, within the court system wondering, you know, how far the government can go in terms of surveillance. And so DNA is, in fact, the fourth biometric that I write about in the book um, in terms of chronology, the first being fingerprints. Uh, next, we have facial images or mugshot, you know, began as mugshots and become, you know, now facial recognition. And then iris scans, which is a Defense Department uh, born biometric ultimately now DNA, because DNA is sort of surging ahead of the other forensic sciences 
with extraordinary leaps and bounds that the courts simply can't keep up with. Well, a lot of this too is, is as your books point out, it, it's tied to how fast um, we can process and move data just through trunk lines. You write at one point that the Defense Department set up this great idea to transfer all this data to Afghanistan, and everybody there was thrilled to be able to get this data, and then they were told, well, it's going to take us about a year <laughs> to get there. So, I mean, what, five, ten years ago, processing DNA was, you know, two, three months uh, issue for every single process. Now it's just becoming light years faster. Uh, so that kind of the uh, exponential curve of technology development is affecting the way that we're able to use it and employ it as described in your book. And, you know, you bring up a great point because one, one idea here is that, you know, the average citizen, sort of certainly me before I wrote this book, maybe you before you read this book, literally has almost no idea about the science involved. I mean, we have things going on in our lives that are keeping us busy from sitting down and saying, oh, hey, let me get like a quick, you know, uh, l let me let me learn about DNA, you know, in, in the in criminalistics. I mean, we're not doing that per se. But what I also found fascinating was that the very soldiers who are collecting these by biometrics, they themselves, Rick, had no idea the scope of what they were doing and what they were involved in. And, you know, what's remarkable about that is, is okay, so picture this, you've got first platoon in, you know, Zari district in southern Afghanistan, this is a place of abject anarchy and terror. I mean, there not only are there no roads, no school systems, no shopping, you know, nowhere to buy food, in essence. It's just a dangerous place sown with IEDs. Life is, as the Pentagon put it, Hobbesian, brutal and short. OK, and there they are thinking that they're in Afghanistan to fight Taliban, when in fact their job is to act like cops on a beat. Because they're part of a program to collect biometrics, not just on bad guys, but on the entire 80% of the population of Afghanistan. They had no idea what they were, that they were doing this because one of the 30 soldiers in the platoon carried the biometric capture equipment. And the rest of them essentially kept guard over him while he took these human measurements. This data collection was meant to assist ROL, rule of law, uh, in Afghanistan because there's no, historically, there are no courts. And in fact, culturally, there were no courts. There was no, in fact, the culture was so different that we thought we go in there and impose rule, Western-style rule of law when they didn't even believe their culture, didn't even subscribe to having ownership of land documented. So it left people astray, you know, just hanging out there. What what to do? Finally, they had to make choices. I think one of the most interesting things I loved is this relationship you create between the coist, the person doing handling all the data, and the rest of the people. And he was kind of like the low man on the totem pole mm -hmm. for a while, at least. That's right. That's right. And he's called the coist, which stands. It's like everything in the military has an acronym, as you learn in the book. And the coist stands for the company intelligence 
support team member. And absolutely, the the coist role was often given to an 18- or 19-year-old private, just someone right out of high school. And so where in the beginning of our conversation, I referenced those CIA paramilitary operators jumping out of aircraft, landing in a, you know, in, a, in, a, in an air base, taking it over and capturing the biometrics on people. These are like, you know, average age 45 with decades of experience warfighting. They're all tier one operators, former Delta, SEALs, etc. These guys doing, you know, this kind of biometric capture seemed like one thing. On the other hand, in first platoon, I write about these coist members, these young kids taking, you know, advanced technology measurements from civilians, having absolutely no idea of the bigger program, but being asked to go back to an outpost after these the measurements are taken, an outpost that sometimes, you know, barely has a satellite hookup. And then inputting this information into a computer system and uploading it to a database for an, a larger outpost in a bigger city to then manage. It's an extraordinary bureaucratic chain of command where so much information can get lost or misused. And that is also at the heart and soul of First Platoon because the stakes are so high here for everything that can go wrong. You're talking about kids who might otherwise be working at Burger King, <laughs> inputting data that to control the population of an entire country. It's really mind-boggling because these are people who are using the future but not aware they're using the future they're like living in the 18th century they're li literally living in the 18th century these people are subsistence farmers with little to subsist on and, and the only thing they can farm are essentially drugs and grapes yet so they're surrounded by the past and they're just using this like a handheld implement from the futures <laughs> and that they themselves will hope to go back and work at Walmart or, or start a real estate agency. Well, you know, the, the, I found a great respect, almost um, adoration of the young soldiers who made a decision to go fight in an, in an American war shortly after high school. It's so amazing to read their stories. I think that's one of the things you do well is to make sure that we're always aware of the human stories, that these are real people who had to make real decisions that land them in a landscape that is unimaginable to many of us. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think the Army should be praised for is this idea of good order and discipline. It's very valuable to, you know, teenage males and probably females too, but all the men, all the people in first platoon were, were male, but you know, they, they entered into this, you know, as you say, maybe there would be a lower paying job opportunity for them, you know, if they took that path. And instead they went into the army. Everyone I interviewed with, you know, conveyed to me a real desire to 
to learn skills and shape their future from the brotherhood of the platoon, right? So there's so many positive aspects of joining the military. And yet, just as you point out, to then throw these guys into a world of science and technology that they have nothing to do with, no knowledge of, and they are a true cog in the wheel. That, I think, was incredibly disconcerting to so many of them after the fact, right? So none of them knew when they, when I began reporting this book and I would talk to some of the soldiers and say, okay, so my book is really on the access of biometrics. They would say things like biometrics. What was that, you know, BS all about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They very much papawed this idea that it was anything of value. And I think only in reading the book did they, really come to understand like my god this we were part of a much bigger system that we had no idea about and i do think it's important that as americans we know about this bigger system because it is most definitely affecting all of us now and will in the future because these systems that i write about in the book born of war have come home to the united states and they ha- they are leaving us with as you pointed out a kind of digital genetic panopticon. You know, one of the things I found most interesting was amidst all the digital data these guys collected, um, they also were asked to create a storyboard. Now, now I interviewed a fellow named Maximilian Uriarty, and he wrote a book called Terminal Lance White Donkey. He was a guy in Afghanistan. And I just thought that one of the consequences of asking all these people to make storyboards of the generally stultifyingly boring things that were going around, around, on around them, or at least to them, just somebody sitting in the field, somebody, whatever, that we created, in a sense, an entire generation of storytellers without even knowing it. And, and they're used to telling stories in a, in a way that's, you know, really direct. When you read a graphic novel, it can be very hard-hitting. So, so maybe talk about the, kind, the way these people found themselves telling stories that they didn't know they would ever even read or under, come to understand. It speaks to a intelligence methodology that... I wrote about in First Platoon that is largely unknown, and that is something called GeoInt, right? Oh, so it I stands love GeoInt. <laughs> and, and I think you're talking about this with the storyboard fellow because it speaks to geospatial intelligence. I mean, it's such a mouthful, uh, but it's also very simple because what it's saying is just think about the concept of geography and think about the concept of intelligence and merge them. But just like your fellow that was writing the storyboards, because we have these powerful big data systems that can handle volumes of data and that it's the algorithms therein can process this information, what you have is just this ocean of data going into these giant Pentagon databases, including storyboards, including, let's say, you know, the COIS would also be taking images, photographs, 
which would be tagged with metadata of location of individuals. This would all be going into the database. Other forms of, of data would be full motion video, which comes from the surveillance system. Full motion video sounds kind of like what you or I might, you know, shoot of our family members, when in fact, in the military speak, what it means is the data from <clears throat> the video is simultaneously being tagged to a GPS location. So it's kind of like, think of an airline tracking system that you might use yourself. All that data is going into the system, creating this geo-int source for whatever analyst may be looking at it. But this brings us to the bigger question, which is, what is the point of all this data? Well, the point in Afghanistan was allegedly to go after Taliban bomb makers, right? So you tag, you track, you locate bad guys, and then ultimately you get the authority to kill them in the war zone. That methodology is called find, fix, finish. But as we see in First Platoon and every other book written about Afghanistan, it's just an endless cycle of tagging, tracking, locating, and killing Taliban bomb maker one who gets replaced by Taliban bomb maker two. Which begs the question, what was the point of all of this? And the frightening reality that I point out in the end of First Platoon is, well, the point of all of this is now we can use these systems in the United States and are. You know, that brings to, to mind uh, a word that should have alerted us long ago that something bad was happening, which was which is the word palantir. This is uh, something from this is essentially a panopticon used for evil from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so if you call your company like Sauron's evil eye, <laughs> you might like lose customers. So better call it Palantir. And that's exactly what uh, two titans from uh, Silicon Valley did. Tell us about Palantir. So I do also think it's important to consider that you have this, the technology that's created right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the user. So it's a bit like the Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein scenario I write about in all of my books. You know, is he who creates the technology responsible for its use? I don't know. I think readers should decide. But with that said, Palantir by its own, uh, you know, statements, it is simply, and we'll put that in quotes, the connective tissue between the organization that uses its product, its software, its algorithms. So in this case, the Department of Defense is its user, its, or, its organization. Palantir is the connective tissue between the organization and what they call actionable operations. So that the actionable... <laughs> scary. The action... <laughs> The actionable operations in this environment, in this situation, are locating or finding, fixing, and finish, finishing terrorists. And that is what Palantir was able to do for the Defense Department, solving this extraordinary problem of what one lieutenant general called, you know, a deluge of data. That there was simply, after years of collecting full motion video in Iraq, the Pentagon found itself, you know, overwhelmed. It didn't know what to do with it. 
Pentagon, uh, the Palantir software systems allowed for the, that vast amount, millions and millions of hours of data, all of those geo archives we just spoke of, to be looked at by a computer system, to have all those bits of data processed, organized, structured, and then ultimately delivered what is called a data slice. And that data slice is also called actionable intelligence, meaning information that then the Pentagon can use to justify legally killing a person in a war zone. And I write about that through the POV of the surveillance system operators in Afghanistan who were actually simultaneously keeping track of the soldiers from 1st Platoon and the terrorists surrounding them. And again, another extraordinary moment for me was to realize that the soldiers in 1st Platoon had no idea they were being watched and monitored by a surveillance system overhead. They were contributing to that so that surveillance system themselves by, you know, <clears throat> giving information on all the Afghanis. And they thought, well, that's great. We're doing a great job. They did not know that somebody else was doing the same thing for them. And, and I think that's one of the fabulously, you know, really terrifying parts of this book. This book is is very interesting to read because on one hand, it's a, it's a story of triumph on in terms of the soldiers, what they're doing. You're just thinking, wow, these guys are great. I mean, they're just doing this stuff in this horrible conditions. And yet what they're doing is back home just being re-engineered. <laughs> For something else, uh, there's an old saying, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. So one of the interesting, when you were talking about the data slices that, that, that result in actionable intelligence, somebody, uh, before that data slice is produced, somebody else is up there above the data slice saying, let's make it contingent on this or that. So they're they're setting up filters down there to filter out the information that does that they so that at the very end they have just the stuff they need. So talk about creating the filters that result in the data slice and, and the the way that one of the things I think you do so well is to show the way these different part people are somewhat unwittingly contributing to, you know, what, what comes out? They do not know what comes out. They are, they are simply, you know, part of the filtration system. I mean, they are. And I think, you know, metaphorically, certainly when I was writing the book, and I think when people read the book, they also get to, you know, turn the mirror back on this themselves and say, where do I fit into this, you know, monster? Where do I fit into this machine? What, what, how am I being used in a manner that I don't know, that I care not to know about. Uh, what is my part in all of this? And that is ultimately what I find most interesting about reporting and, and writing this. But when you ask about the algorithms, you know, you brought up a very important point because in Afghanistan, the set, the protocols of what is trying to be accomplished is very understandable and clear, meaning, you know, um, the forensic biometrics that are being captured on the ground, the fingerprints, the iris scans, the DNA, 
uh, and the facial images. They're all going into this biometric database so that there is a catalog of people so that when an IED goes off and fingerprints are pulled from that IED because little little does, do most people know the Defense Department was in essence treating all of Afghanistan like one big crime scene. So they pull fingerprints off of IEDs and then they try to make a match. You know, that information gets sent back to a laboratory in, in America and many months later, an analyst sitting at a desk somewhere in Virginia or Georgia or West Virginia says, bingo, this terrorist, this man is a terrorist because we found his fingerprints. And now you have that information in the biometric capturing system so that in the chance of one in 1,000, the group of young soldiers comes across a villager whose biometrics they take simply because they're there. They make a match. Bingo, that person is arrested, right? And that happens early on in this book, and that's one of the really fabulous uh, you know, harbingers of what's to come. The first platoon just takes, is out there taking biometrics from people and they take biometrics from somebody. Turns out he's the number two wanted guy in Afghanistan. This is really, uh, it's both amazing, but then when you start like retrofitting it back to the USA, it starts to get terrifying. Well, it does. And the example that I use is a, is a company called Predpol, which stands for predictive policing. And this is a direct result of the kind of technology, the surveillance technology and the algorithms being used in Afghanistan, then sort of jury rigged for the United States. And you asked about the data slices and, the, and what are the parameters that are being looked at of essentially who to you know, stop to arrest. Because in the United States, so for example, Predpol had an early program here in Los Angeles where I live. And, you know, you can't ha capture biometrics on every single person in Los Angeles. That would be a violation of privacy. And so instead, algorithms were created by these professors based on who they thought might be committing crimes. Now, think about what I just said and how dangerous that is. And I quote these professors saying at a defense symposium, well, and I'm paraphrasing, but you can read in the book their precise words, they say something like, well, we began looking at, uh, you know, these systems in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we figured out that sort of tribes or groups of, you know, bomb makers in Afghanistan are very much like tribes of people in South Central Los Angeles. And so they inferred that criminals lived in a certain area, in a subpopulation of Los Angeles, and then wrote predictive policing algorithms uh, to follow that, what is an arguably bogus logic. And so now you had a situation where you had LAPD focusing its lens on certain subpopulations of Los Angeles. That is known colloquially as, you know, broken window policing. And it's very dangerous because it profiles a certain group of people based on a bogus algorithm. I'm beginning to suspect that perhaps you took this book into your time machine and popped back to 1970 and handed a copy to Philip K. Dick so he could write Minority Report. <laughs> Uh, because this stuff that is 
back out of science fiction. Well, it, it really is. And, you know, another situation that is sort of has been reported a little bit in the United States involves a system called persistent surveillance. And this, this is, is fascinating when you write about it in Afghanistan. It's just great. I mean, Persistent surveillance is the idea that you could take a, an aerostat, which is a big giant balloon, not a blimp. It's not an airship. It's not powered on its own. It's just a balloon that's tethered to a cable. In this, in this case, that cable is tethered to the cop, the combat outpost. And the balloon flies high enough that it can't easily be shot down by insurgents. But the powerful camera systems on the aerostat are pointed down on the ground and are capturing video of what's going on. Hours and hours and hours of video waiting for that moment when an individual on the ground makes a move that could be interpreted as, say, planting a bomb. And then the whole system goes into action, as I write about in Afghanistan. Well, these systems, again, born of war, are now being flown over the United States. And one example I write about in the book is in Baltimore, Maryland. And instead of being a giant aerostat tethered to a combat outpost, mm. these cameras are flown aboard a, a fixed-wing aircraft that just flies in circles over the city, sucking in vast amounts of data. That data then goes into a database and in essence just sits there until a crime is committed. And then, just as you say, it's sort of in a very science fiction-like manner, the images are then called up and looked at and allow law enforcement to piece together the crime using other forms of surveillance, things like ground cameras, things like ring doorbells, things like automated license plate readers and you might say well isn't that a good thing because now you can use modern technology technology to catch a criminal but of course what you have to ask is that opening question we were discussing what does this mean for privacy what does it mean that all of those tens of thousands of people who were walking around near where that crime is being committed are forever in a government law enforcement database. It also uh, begs the question, who decides what's criminal and what is not? And are those decisions being made visibly in public or are they being made somewhere else <laughs> by someone else? We have no idea. I mean, what I'm saying sounds on one hand like uh, something straight out of paranoid conspiracy fantasy, but <laughs> it's not a conspiracy if they're really after you. I mean, you know, the ramifications are so huge, it almost makes you want to just go do your laundry and ignore it all, because <laughs> it's precisely that. I mean, right now, there are estimated to be 85 million surveillance cameras in the United States. Per capita, that's more than China. 
So we are not becoming a surveillance state. We are a surveillance geography, shall we say. So the question that you ask is very important, is at what point does law enforcement get to use this data? And that is the question. Now, we have criminal justice systems set up to look at all of this. We have, but while these issues of Fourth Amendment and rights to privacy and, you know, search and seizure illegally are being slowly debated in the court systems, I mean, really, truly at a snail's pace, you have the technology, the surveillance technologies moving forward at lightning speed. And it's that disconnect that is so troublesome. And that is what the conservative Justice Antonin Scalia warned about in 2013 when he actually called this a genetic panopticon. You know, uh, these systems you talk about have real-world, in-your-face, immediate consequences, too, uh, with regard to, as one you point out, a, a recent presidential pardon. So talk about how how those this technology played out in, you know, like the day-to-day Yahoo headlines. So this is where the story that is heavy and tragic in many ways takes an, you know, an abominable turn, right? Turn of events. Because... You have, a, you have first platoon, this platoon of young paratroopers in Afghanistan, fighting courageously, being asked to participate in this biometric capture program. They have no idea the ramifications of which. And they are suffering loss after loss. I mean, just terrible things happen to the young soldiers. And then their platoon leader is injured by an IED. And he's replaced by a first lieutenant named Clint Lawrence, a soldier who had spent his entire deployment up to that point in an air-conditioned tactical operations center looking at all of this technology that we have been talking about. So suddenly you have a, a, a lieutenant with no combat experience sent into this outpost in the middle of abject anarchy and terror. This is like and, a plot for aliens. <laughs> I, I mean, it is, except for it is nonfiction. And this is That's the scary part. And the army officer goes rogue. I mean, I let the, you know, the record speak for itself. I quote from the thousand pages of this soldier, this lieutenant's murder trial um, to try and make very clear what was warranted to a military judge happened as opposed to being retold to me by the soldiers, which it also was. But I wanted readers to realize this is all on the record. And so the young, the Lieutenant Clint Lawrence goes rogue and he orders, I think out of fear, his, the, the soldiers of first platoon to fire on three civilians on a motorcycle, killing two of them. And it's a terrible event. But then the hammer of army justice comes down in a way that I don't want to give away because it's 
it's terrifying to witness. And the army begins to look at the whole platoon for war crimes. The ultimate outcome of that is there is no grounds to charge anyone other than the rogue First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence. He's convicted of double murder and he's sent to Leavenworth prison for 19 years. Whether or not you think that's a fair amount of time for a first lieutenant is a separate issue. But what happens, you asked about the presidential pardon, is that after the lieutenant is sitting in Leavenworth, along comes a team of defense attorneys who are experts in biometrics. One is a former lieutenant colonel who worked for the Department of Justice at the Justice Center in Parwan, where biometrics, were, and that's in Afghanistan, where biometrics were used to prosecute Taliban bombmakers. So you couldn't have more, you couldn't have individuals with more expertise def, you know, taking on this case. And when I came into the story, I thought, my God, they must be right. And their position was the men killed on the motorcycle were Taliban bombmakers. And that opens up an entirely different set of problems, which is how could the army have made this mistake? But in my investigating and my reporting and ultimately filing of Freedom of Information Act requests, I learned, my God, these lawyers absolutely created a house of cards. They did a sleight of hand, kind of a magic trick on the president of the United States presented bogus biometric information to him, alleging that the men on the motorcycle were Taliban bombmakers, claiming to have DNA and fingerprint evidence from bombs that tied them to murder, when in fact, it was all a lie. And the commander-in-chief, President Trump, pardoned this war criminal. And it's such a tragedy on top of a tragedy, you know, Writing it was heartbreaking. And the fact that this individual has since been released from prison and is seen by many as a war hero is just, it really just turns the whole concept of, you know, military justice, of good order and discipline among soldiers on its head. You know, you talked about the terrible things that these soldiers experienced. I have to wonder, you yourself spent two or three years talking to these people about what happened. You talked about the thousand-page report on this murder. This is a 300-page book. I think what you did is nothing short of miraculous. On one hand, you took in, you were, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, like Played the part, a very old part, called uh, somebody called a sin, a sin eater, somebody who who like listened to the confessions of all the horrible things these people uh, did, and you you took all that in, you took all the objective reporting and reading you did in, and transformed it really beautifully and with some kind of amazing amount of skill into like a. a toe-tapping tale of terror that is um, certainly 100% true, but for anybody who cut their teeth on, you know, reading Robert Heinlein in high school, <laughs> this reads like, you know, a book that, uh, a Heinlein novel that I missed. So so talk about taking in 
yourself personally, all that kind of awfulness. I mean, that, that, that seems like, you know, a good setup for PTSD. Well, for me, it's an honor and a privilege to hear the stories of others, you mm-hmm. know, and I do hear a lot of, you know, a lot of times people share stories with me that's off the record and that's because it's so deeply personal and powerful and it's a, perhaps a catharsis for them to be able to share that with another individual, in this case myself, who is not shocked and does not judge. I am someone who has never been to war, and I am forever grateful to those who do that job. And I, I listen carefully because war affects all of us in many different ways, it shapes our society and it speaks to where we've been, where we are now and where we're going. Working with the soldiers of first platoon was especially rough for me, mostly because they were so young when they went to war and having written now six books on the military intelligence community, most of the people are, are are older and you know these guys were in profoundly affected by this catastrophe that was their deployment and it ended in such horror with that war crime um committed by first lieutenant Clint Lawrence and their sort of de facto involvement in it um they were shunned by members of the military family when they came home because without having read the data on what actually happened, many people perceived the members of first platoon of having turned on one of their own. And this is just so wrong. And so for me to listen to the stories and be able to present them, hopefully in an objective manner, uh, I like the word sin eater. I think it's also like, um, you know, orator. I was just the mouthpiece for perhaps what they couldn't say themselves because so much emotion is tangled up in all of this. One of the the fascinating stories you tell is the story of Abdul Ahad. So so tell us who he was and, and how he fit into the bigger story that you wanted to tell you know he it's such an interesting sort of conundrum with abdul ahad because he represents the what the what the defense department set out to do in identifying taliban bomb makers and cell leaders and so his very name that we're saying is fascinating and part of the story because here's this guy called Abdullahad and the Abdullahad that I write about in my book has a biometric identification number because if you reverse engineer the information, you go back and you, as I did and having got this entire full Freedom of Information Act request on this guy, you can piece together how a single terrorist um, moves and evolves over a decade in in Afghanistan because that's how long the Defense Department was tracking him with its biometric 
biometric capturing devices. And it was that push and pull of that I spoke of earlier, whereby he's, you know, the biometrics are pulled off of, off of, you know, IED components. And then the information is sent back to a laboratory in America. It's determined yet again, Abdullah Had is a terrorist, but we can't find him and he's put in prison. And then we send someone to go get him, but he's been released. It's just this nightmare of bureaucratic incompetence. And terrible irony of all of this is that the reason why these biometric systems were first set up by the defense department is because a name means nothing without actual identifying you know physical forensics so in other words you go back a hundred years the fingerprint of a person and no two fingerprints are alike can confirm the identity of someone. And the story of Abdullah Had is so warped because many people in southern Afghanistan are named Abdul Ahad. Many, many people. And the fingerprints and the DNA on the criminal Abdul Ahad exist in a database presently in West Virginia. And the, there, the other person that I write about named Abdul Ahad who was a witness and the kin of two of the people killed in the double murder that was ordered by Clint Lawrence is sort of framed to be the terrorist Abdullahad by these lawyers who claim to be biometric experts. And if that is a tangled, nonsensical story, it in many ways is, but it boils down to this. These biometric databases are accessible to a rare few number of people in federal law enforcement and the military, and they're understood by far fewer. And that esoteric information can be manipulated and misrepresented, including to the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. And that ultimately is the takeaway of this tragic story. You know, when you were describing the picture of Abdullah Azad that, you know, there's the person and then it telescopes back to all this data somewhere in Virginia. When I was a kid, I was super interested in space. And so somebody gave me, uh, I've managed to get a pic, an official book from NASA. It was a huge format book. And it was from the, the Ranger missions i think that's what they were called and th these were satellites we just aimed at the moon and they just crashed on the moon and took and sent back pictures as they crashed so this book was just a tome of all the pictures that the ranger satellite took as it was crashing on the moon <laughs> and, and i was thinking that what you described as existing back in Virginia in some database is kind of the, the human equivalent of that book. And that I guess one of the lessons of this book is that somewhere somebody is creating a digital library of books like the Ranger Crash Satellite <laughs> Crash Book, which is like, you know, Rick Cleffel going to the grocery store till he crashes into the freeway underpass. <laughs> And this is a, a, a power, to, the power to create that alone is frightening 
what you do with that library is, you know, uh, nothing short of uh, George Orwell. I think that is the perfect, I don't even think I can continue speaking after hearing that because you know what? You described in essence, um, you know, that not just uh, a speeding train about to crash, but rather a speeding train crashing over and over and over again into the moon. And that is precisely, in many ways, the perfect metaphor for the story of First Platoon. You know, I, I think, too, that <clears throat> I, I have to say that uh, I didn't get too far into this, and, and I, just this bell got started ringing in my head, and it's still ringing now. It says TIA. TIA, Total Information Awareness, and this idea of identity dominance. Because the idea of, I mean, just that idea is rather frightening. I mean, I am who I am. But the thought that somebody could come to know all the aspects of my personality and the aspects of what I do and my actions and how I live and how I spend my money and stuff... That, that would give somebody that I have no idea who they are, where they are, or what they're doing, or what they want, dominance over my identity. And I think that that's a really terrifying and interesting implication of this book. Tell us about TIA, <laughs> where, where we are now with TIA. Well, I wrote about that program, Total Information Awareness, in my book about DARPA called The Pentagon's Brain. And the, syne- the, the connective tissue between that, I think, is the Defense Science Board, which, which is a oh, you told group us about of scientists. Yes. yes, a group of scientists at the Pentagon. And in, in many ways, this is where the whole concept of identity dominance began. Because in the early days of the War on Terror, when we had Donald Rumsfeld as our Secretary of Defense, He went to the Defense Science Board and said, how are we going to win the global war on terror? And they proposed to him a quote-unquote Manhattan-like project to tag, track, and locate people. And that is where this all began. And that has spawned precisely what you're talking about, this concept of identity dominance, that the Pentagon is no longer as interested in looking at the movement of, you know, armies as they are at looking at the identity of individual people. And when you add into the mix the concept of big data, of total data, which is that TIA program, you have precisely that kind of frightening nightmare that you described where somewhere, somehow, someday, somebody is working to gather an extraordinary amount of information, of data about you to then decide who you are. And that's why this whole story is about identity in the age of identification. You know, um, one of the things that, that this book made me think about is um, the concept of war itself. One of the concepts of war that's really key is to know you're fighting a war. If you don't know you're fighting a war, but somebody's fighting against you, then 
they're well on their way to winning. Um, and, and we've just had a giant invasion of all of our national, you know, computer systems. They've been completely invaded. Is this a war? Do we know? How will we know? How will we know if this is a war or not? We are at the point where, you know, we cannot say if we're fighting a war. And if you can't say if you're fighting a war, the chances are you're losing badly. <laughs> Which is the nature of asymmetric warfare. Mm -hmm. And that is where I think that the, another takeaway of all of this really is the concept of rule of law. Because, you know, although the, the, that very phrase has been hijacked and warped by the current now outgoing administration, rule of law is a hallmark of, you know, Western democracy. There has to be rule of law. People have to follow rules and pay attention to laws. And yet beneath that, and if you don't, you have civil disorder um, in the in the war theater, that concept is asymmetric warfare. And that's precisely what you're talking about. And, you know, within the military intelligence community today, the number one concern is precisely that. The non-kinetic forms of warfare that we're seeing, just like this recent solar winds hack that you're referring to, whereby, you know, data, and we've been talking about data for an hour now, is compromised, and the extent of that compromise is not fully comprehended. You know, I also find it really interesting to uh, think about the kinds of stories that come from this from this whole long story. I mean, it's not even very long; it's just really fascinating. So, talk about just the influence that this that researching data collection which is essentially a form of storytelling um ha has had on your the way you tell stories well you know i think with all storytelling it's a pro it's a matter of for when you're writing nonfiction, it's listening to others gathering clues about where that story will take you and then looking in documents and archives to fill out the story and lay the groundwork for essentially the next act. And that's always what I do with all of my books. You know, in, in a way, they all, it's a forward march, both of humans and of science. And the interesting thing is, where are we going to end up? Uh, that's so interesting because that's one of the things I feel every time I read one of your books, I think that, it, I think, wow, what a great story. What, what a great introduction to some kind of dystopian novel. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's our world. I've been speaking with Annie Jacobson. Her new book is First Platoon. Thank you for joining me, Annie. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.